have you read um, Sexual Suicide? I haven't, no. Or Man in Marriage by George Gilder. George Gilder, man, that dude. Yeah. He's impressive. He really is. Um, But one of the things that I was reading from him on Sexual Suicide, Chapter 7, did I tell you about that? No. Oh, I can't do it here because this is not what we're going to talk about today. But if I can summarize what I think he did in chapter seven of sexual suicide, you know how everybody talks about white supremacy and how, you know, how racist America is and um, it's full of white supremacy and blah, 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 blah. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't think that everybody is making a play to try and gain power the same way. I think there's some people who feel who really do feel something who really do um are engaging are are engaging the world and saying something is a problem and I don't know what it is. And I think that there is a dismissive attitude from from some of the my conservative friends to be able to say, well, what's going on? <laughs> right? Because everybody's such in a position to play for power that you don't even want to listen to some folks, right? But George right. Gilder to me, I think um I think George Gilder hits this thing out the park and he basically goes through Chapter seven and, and um, he starts dealing with uh, kind of the breakdown of the black home, the Moynihan report, the 1965 and the importance that black culture has played in American culture. And OK. And he, he basically says that there's not one area of American culture that has not been saturated with black culture. It's all intertwined. You can't, you know, when you see how they've engulfed with jazz, right? Jazz mm -hmm. has come up and has just taken over. Everything is jazz, right? In one way or another. It's come from jazz, yeah. hip hop, whatever you want to say. And it's prominent. It was extremely prominent earlier in the early 1900s. Um, it really grew, but it was even before that. But it became such a part of, you know, American culture, it was like, he even talks about the kind of like the first hip hop. He didn't say this, but going through the trajectory that he starts off the whole chapter by saying, there's a guy, um, I can't remember the guy's name cause I don't have the book here, but the, the, he's quoting and he says, um, I wanted after I became a prominent person in jazz, I wanted to come back to the community the same way a pimp did where they had the nice cars, they had the nice clothes, and you knew that they were successful. And that was the image right. of this very well-known jazz player. And I was like, "That's jazz player is supposed to be a high-class thing, not like the looking like no pimp. That wasn't the thing. But that's how we look at jazz now. Jazz then was like hip-hop. It was way okay. more... Um, uh, street it had a different engagement it was the that's the dude you know what I mean <laughs> right so you had yeah, yeah it was different and so that was the persona of this jazz player to come back and to have this type of look so he basically goes through the, and I'm making this long but I'll make it short he basically comes to the end of this whole chapter after breaking down the demise of the black family how that social structured impact a social structured programs have removed the male from the family and has created an effeminate culture predominantly in the black culture right and, and, and black society so there's an effeminacy to the culture because all the institutions are favoring um all the institutions are designed to favor women 
the the man is getting his handout from the woman at the uh at the welfare system, right? So from one woman to another woman and he's kind of out and he just makes this great connection of how the welfare system really erodes the, the structure of a family inside the black community. And he, and he says black communities and black, black culture has had this predominant effeminate culture because of this pushing out of black men. And then he gets to the end of the, go ahead. Have you seen the new, um, the new documentary about Tupac. No, it confirms that exactly what he's saying. It confirms it. Just, no. Okay. Okay. That's yeah. on Hulu, right? It is. Yeah. I have yeah. to go check it out, but here's the kicker. So he gets to the end of this and he makes a great case and Moynihan, he takes Moynihan's point and he starts saying, this is where he starts bringing in the impact of black culture to American society. He's like, you can't, untangle it from american society it's everywhere the the sports the way we talk the way we engage music it's everywhere so it's not like it's a thing over there it's just in american culture yeah yeah um and he says but what we didn't investigate when we embraced it was all of the other things that it brought primarily the brokenness of an effeminate culture because of the way that the america eradicated the black man from the black family and so right. we, it brought an effeminate. And so because the institutions are made to design for women, it works along with women. It makes men have to leave their, um, so they don't submit their sexual desires. And he's meaning covenant. They don't have covenant relationship with women anymore. So their sexual desire, their sexual, he says sexuality, um, is, is verified by other men, <laughs> right? So that other Got men. It. Okay. Are they go find clusters of men that are being hard or the gang and they get them to validate their their dominance, who they are as men instead of submitting that sexuality to a woman and then bringing forth a cultivation of a family and these other things. They get this dominant takeover attitude that he fit. That's effeminate. Right. It's not something that right. is submitted. It's dominant, which is becomes effeminate. And that be, permeates everything into that they do. Right. And so now what happens is you embrace this effeminate culture that has to reject the system because it can't fit inside the system. And so what you get in sports with this dominant attitude and this just like it's gritty, it, it has a form of masculinity that has no submission to a to a wife. No submission to a woman. Right. No. And so there right. isn't a real covenant relationship. There's just dominance, just pure dominance. Right. Interesting. And so when you embrace that, what you end up getting is an effeminate culture everywhere in everything, easily offended, right? Has to be taken care of, has to be managed. And it's not, and and this is what Moynihan's point was. If we don't fix, um, I don't agree with everything he's saying here. I'm just quoting Moynihan. Yeah, yeah. But if we don't fix the destruction of the black family back in 1965, he was arguing this, that this would be the destruction of America, that the yeah. that effeminate, out of wedlock, predominantly single mom culture would drive crime, would drive um, unsettledness, would drive the lack of work, would make people dependent on the system, even the outside of the black culture, because it would go everywhere. And so what I think, and he didn't say this, but after reading all that, what I think most people are think that they're feeling 
when they think they're feeling a white supremacist culture pressing in on them. I think they are feeling something, but they're feeling an effeminate culture that doesn't allow for growth. It's all dominance. It's all effeminate. There's there's no submission. So then what does growth look like? Well, if you don't know what marriage looks like, if you don't know the, the, the man submitting his sexuality to a woman and a woman taking that sexuality and then making to, children to and culture. One, to one woman. To one woman. Yeah. To, absolutely. To one woman. Because I think that's what makes the difference. Well, submitting. Well, I don't think there's submission any other way. So you can't submit your sexuality to multiple uh, women. No, it, it ends up being submitted to an idea. Rather, you know, to so you dominate. Uh, so rather, yeah. So you end up, and so you see, you see this in, um, you know, when you get something similar that happens when you get, um, like the the cultures that are uh, based on like a strong Marian theology rather than Christ, mm. where you get this i the idealization of women in the abstract mm. right um that but then it leads to men um not being expected to uh to control their sexuality right so men are men um can sleep around and everybody expects it boys will be boys all that and um but then you look at it and you're like well but you've got this idealization of the abstract woman rather than the the submission of your body to one particular woman by in a covenant this is proverbs right and right. that's all this it, is it is right yeah it's proverbs and i think you it's it's you know you, you think back about like the, the most transgressive thing in the eight, 80s and 90s in black culture was a your mama joke right <laughs> you don't joke about you don't, you don't play with mama. mom yeah that's right right but it was, but it was transgressive comedy, um, you know, for that reason, right? But it's, but it's the idealization, right? It's not really like you, you're not actually, you don't actually have a culture that's really good at showing honor to women in the eighties and the nineties. Oh my culture. goodness! Right, right, right. But you've still got this woman base. You know, the, the, there's still a matriarch, right? But a matriarchal culture um uh that might not be the right way to put it a um yeah i think i think a matriarchal i was thinking yeah 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 matriarchal a society i guess rather than culture a matriarchal society um doesn't lead to the honoring of women right and and it never has right that's um the cultures that really um honor and lift up women well are the ones that understand um that understand their value understand you know see what they're for and understand and value them rather than um you uh rather than sort of set them up as the one who's responsible because that's what a matriarchal society does is it says mama's mama's responsible God sets it up the other direction. Interesting. Right? So, um, and that's what we, a matriarchal 
uh, societies easy to lead around and control and use by the people. Yeah, they're submissive power. to institutions, right? That they're supposed. Mm-hmm. They, well, it's funny. Women are designed to be submissive. What? Do you, what's the problem yeah. here? Yeah, that is, it's they're gonna. It's there's going to be a. But if they're also responsible, right? Then they're going to be looking for somebody that's going to provide. And the government can step in or the government stepped in and said, hey, we'll provide. And the men were like, hey, they're providing. I don't need to. Um, You're responsible to feed these kids. You're responsible to raise these kids and get them there, get them to church. You're responsible. You know, and so when the when um, that, you you know, that that's a an unprotected subculture, unprotected society that. and you know what? I mean, you and that it's not the first time that ever happened, right? You had the same thing with the um, Spartans, right? It's very similar. The Spartan culture was very similar um, in that uh, you know the um, the men trained in war exclusively, and then the women were responsible for the other stuff. That culture disappeared. You know, like and that was that was it turned out that that moment in the Spartan culture was the very end of the Spartan culture. It, the, everybody looked at it and was like, oh my gosh, they're so tough. The, even the women fight and you know, all this. But it turned out to be the very end of the society because the society that has handed over responsibility to the women in society is a society that's within generations of disappearing. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, I don't know. Um, we don't need to talk about this, this show. That's not what we're supposed to be talking about. Cause that's going to get us into trouble, <laughs> you know, but, it, but, but, but I mean, it, in some ways it is what we planned on talking about. Well, yeah, you know, this is what this because, is. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let me just say, so Moynihan figured this out in 1965 that part of the, the mistake that we've made I think in some of the conversations that are taking place right now in America around race is that it removes the idea that we are covenanted together as Americans. So if, if Moynihan, um, Moynihan could see that, wait a second, Americans are having a problem because of the, the infrastructure that we're making around them. That is, that is going to destroy them. And that is starting to destroy them because just 15 years before everything was intact. Matter of fact, the marriage rate was higher than that of white people at the time. And he's saying, wait a second. You know, he he wasn't right on everything. He thought slavery was the problem and other things was the problem. There was something else. Right. It was a, it was the fact that the government came in and took the place of the father in, in a particular mm-hmm. group of people. And in trying to help, it made them slaves and created an effeminate culture that even man became effeminate. And by the way, they reacted to this, the lack of being out of sync and being in covenant relationship with women, right? There is a beautiful marriage between the two that you have to have to build society. And when you destroy that bond and put anything else in its place, it doesn't work. And so, but go ahead. There, there is a, so the there was actually literal white supremacists though that wanted that wanted to use 
that wanted to experiment on black families on what would it look like for the government to break down. I forgot about them. You the right. Family. I mean, I didn't right? forget so, about them, but yeah, so, that was part of it. So I think that it, there really was a, um, I mean, you, there's a really great book on, um, the, on the history of zoning codes in East coast cities. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 900 pages on the history of zoning codes and how zoning codes were used to disrupt minority families purposefully. They right. knew they were, that there were people that knew they were doing it because uh, it, and it's the same group of folks that started Planned Parenthood, right? That, um, that there was, there's an, there was an actual conspiracy to destroy minorities and the, the fabric of minority families so that they could be returned to their quote unquote proper place. Um, I don't, you know, I, uh, you know which, I, I get so that, that really was there. No, I, um, I, I, you're now, right. No, you're right. I don't think they were effective so, though. So we, I, in some places they were and some places they weren't, I think it revealed the, um, it revealed some of the, um, it, uh, but it, something doesn't, you know, living things don't rot. Yeah. Right. And so when you have the sudden, the sudden just crumbling of the black, black family, it, that's, that's not something that you, you can accomplish from the outside. Right. So that was something that was happening already. Right. People came along and you know, that there was a crack there and they just said, Oh, we'll stick our, pole in there and we'll we'll wrench on it and we can get the crack bigger but at the same time um there there's serious bad actors at the federal level most yeah. of them were at the federal level i i just so and I, and and it's just evolution evolutionary thought says somebody's going to be at the top somebody's going to be at the bottom and it's a biological question so it makes sense in the worldview in their worldview to say we are we are right. There is a racial rivalry going on and one of us has to win and one of us has to lose. And so that was a major part of the eugenics movement that got significant inroads into the federal government from starting in the twenties uh, up until the sixties. I mean, the, the last eugenics law um, was finally removed from the books in the seventies. Um, the federal federal eugenics law it was like late 70s before they finally wow. got rid of the last eugenics law so um, they just changed the name it, with eugenics and, that's all right what i mean you still got the 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 planned parenthood was a part of the eugenics movement oh, um, what is the whole transgender they, thing it's all eugenics it it is and you're starting to see a cyan uh a, an individual scientific eugenics um, <laughs> grow as people start to say like, Hey, I can get you a boy. I can help you choose. Do you want a boy or a girl? I can, you know, those, those sort of eugenical movements, but you've always had since evolution, you've had true believers that get into eugenics. Um, Chesterton's books, book eugenics and other evils um, is really helpful on this and you know he's writing the early the, the teen 19 teens he's starting to write on the evils of eugenics in england and the problem is the anglican church um had people teaching eugenics preaching eugenics um and 
so when people say like, oh, he became a Roman Catholic, you got to realize how messed up the only Protestant option was <laughs> in his day. They they were going through the modernist movement the same way our, um, so it was 20 years, 25, 30 years before American mainline denominations became modernist, that English and German churches are becoming modernist. And he is sitting there watching these um, Anglican churches go the woke, I mean, basically. Mm. And the, um, and so he switches to the local Roman Catholic church because the local Roman Catholic priest is the, the one that's fighting modernism. Right. So, um, but he wrote, uh, he wrote a bunch about the eugenics movement and its growth in England that happened here. The difference is the middle America would have nothing, have, would have nothing to do with it. Most Americans wouldn't have anything to do with it. The abolitionists' cause um, was so successful um, that that uh, there were so that a lot of America w- just outright rejected any sort of eugenical anything. Um, but it didn't mean that there weren't still people in power that were into it. So, so it is hard when you say, "Well, there is some." I think that there was. Um, there were people that were making white supremacy moves at the time. Oh yeah. That, but, but that's not, but here's what's crazy is that I don't find that a new narrative inside the story that we're talking about with black people in America. Okay. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> but, but, but I think if, I think that the, that conservatives have, um, well, for one, we have, we haven't done our, historical research right Mm. and so we actually so people come along and they're like oh there's it's all this white supremacy and um and the left even though they were the ones that actually did it at the time have now turned and said y'all did the the right yeah yeah you you y'all look what y'all did look at all that white supremacy it's like well wait you're you're telling me that when Planned Parenthood started and they went and they did their Ku Klux Klan tour to raise money and promised to to weed the human race of the brown skinned people. Um, and, and Margaret the, and Singer's the on with them. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. She was the one that was up there giving the speeches. Right, and you guys and they're right. And you guys are giving Margaret Singer say, awards. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then and then they turn to the right and say, "Look what you all have done, you white supremacists." And they're like, "I." I the, historical if just just a little bit of historical research reveals that 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 it, you know it was um it wasn't the right that was um pushing that sort of stuff now have there been racists on the right yeah we get no there. never but not one but, <laughs> but it's the solution is not everybody get go right right the solution right. is everybody find jesus that's right um who's not a racist right. and then uh <laughs> but but uh what we we have tended to say to just respond to the left's rhetoric rather than develop our own positive vision for um how we think you know what what would it actually look like to try and solve some of these problems i mean we actually did cuz you had like martin luther king jr out there um, on the right, you know, get trying to give a vision. It, it was just, I think it was, it was compromised, but he was presenting um, 
a vision from the right for a, a, a society without the racial animosity. So it's not totally true that we haven't presented a positive vision, but the left went out there and killed him. So <laughs> just go toss that one in there like that. huh? Um, you know, it's funny. I always feel like I stand in between the two with these arguments sometimes where it's like, Oh, totally. Yeah. But part of my reason for, I'm not pushing back on what you're saying. I know I agree with you and everything you're saying there is a, a tendency because we don't know even how to deal with guilt in the conservative party that we try to act like nothing ever mm-hmm. happened. And like, we don't have our own problems in there. I, 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 um, should I say Republicans or the right? So, but what I'm trying to communicate to the right right now is that you had a group of people that had all sorts of issues pressing in on them, weren't allowed to vote, couldn't, own firearms, you know, the first and second amendment of rights were completely abolished, weren't given to them. Mm-hmm. Second class citizens in America. And if you look at what they were able to produce and the 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 temperament that they gave to a nation over a period of time has been one of the most successful groups of people in America. And they and and that's and and they did that they did that in spite of all the things that the conservatives are fighting for right now to try and preserve. They did that without those things because of some faithfulness, right? Now you destroy. There was, there was faithfulness. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, you're, you got a smirk on your face, so you want to correct something I just said? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. They did it with faithfulness, and um, they were and with the artistic. The artistic muse touched yes. them, yes. The people, and that that is the way affections are are that that's the way what we love is changed is through beauty, right? So it's through the arts, um, and they so when when you look back and you look at the when the pressures of injustice produced art that changed and formed the affections uh of a nation i mean the they um music there i mean this this and this goes plato talks about this this all through you know boethius wrote an entire book about this right music tunes our loves art and beauty tunes our loves um and the the what God did is through the pressures that were put on the black folks that were you know many of whom most of whom maybe even were brought here against their will the pressures that they were put under produced art within them that then they within them within their society but it was the best art and so then it went out and and hit the rest of the world and the rest of the world had their, their love reorganized um, by the black artists. Um, I mean, and, and it's, and what's crazy is it, a lot of it came from the black church and it, we don't get that is the credit is not given to the black church that should be given to it. If you look at like uh, um, even the Harlem Renaissance and read the actual 
um, publishings from the Harlem Renaissance, you realize that that was a deeply Christian movement, that the church was deeply involved in the poetry and the um, a lot of the musicians were trained in church and they were still singing church songs. Um, when it gets published now in um, in the university, uh, you know, that they'll put together, uh, uh, here's, here's all the important poems from the Harlem Renaissance. They only put the secular ones and the socialist ones out as important. Everything else is considered unimportant by modern people, by, you know, by the present establishment, um, if it was Christian, but it was deeply a Christian revival of the arts. The same with gospel music, the, um, which became rock and roll, uh, which became, uh, which, you know, the eventually, uh, you know, affects soul music, disco, funk, all of that comes out of gospel music. In fact, you, can, blues, you know, yeah. you can't even tell that. Yeah. The blues, you know, all of that, um, is comes out of out of the beauty that God's people um, who were put under an oppressive oppressive put into a oppressive high pressure um, situations and went before the face of the Lord and said rescue us mm. and they were transformed into artists and musicians and poets um, in, in I mean the only the only poets in America that are making um, an income on their poetry are coming out of black, black, the black, you know, out of rap, out of hip hop and rap. So I think there's a, we, as a church, there's a lot we need to learn, especially when I suspect that there's pressure coming or yeah. And that's the thing. I, that's, that was my whole point in bringing that up was that, there is, I don't think you have to be necessarily run underneath that pressure, but if you go clutching for your pearls, um, or in, in this case, clutching for your false gods, um, I love a gun. I appreciate guns. I own plenty of them. I'm going to own more, and I'm going to buy a lot of ammo, bottom line, okay? <laughs> um, and, you know, First Amendment, defend it, fight for it, go to court over it. Absolutely. I'm for those two. Don't get me wrong. But that's not the thing that I think is my savior, right? And right. so this is why, you know, when I moved to Moscow, there were some things that I realized I needed to develop. And one of the things that I felt like I needed, I, I knew I didn't have the education I needed to be a man. That was scary, right? And I'm seeing these other guys deal with the same problems I have to deal with, but in a different way. And I'm like, why are you... What is clicking in your head that's, that makes you deal with your kids in this manner versus that manner? Or why are the boys just a little more ruckus around here? Like, what, <laughs> you know, everywhere else I go, I'm used to boys. Hey, settle down. You're always out of spot. You know, get in line. Do this. You know, the boys are really guarding. Everybody says, oh, my boys. My girls do good. Oh, but my boys. That wasn't a theme around here. That was interesting, right? Um, and the education Everything pointed back to education. Everything pointed back to, and and then when I got to education, it, it really where you kind of started, everything started with passions. And I remember Ben Merkel saying, if you ever missed Christmas, um, then and you, it, it should hurt. It should be like, oh, wow, I'm not at a place where I have these desires for because 
all of your passions and desires were built around the smells and the um, the laughter and around the joy. And so you had this cultivation around the day that you wouldn't want to miss with your family. Um, talking about Christ, you know, all those things have a certain value to you that if you were to miss that, it would it would break you. Right. And he's used that idea to th- talk about yes, education. It's, yes. It's the reason the song I'll be home for Christmas is so feels so deep, you know, hits so deep is because something, you know, not being home for Christmas um, is hard. It would be really hard if you've got a, any sort of traditions in your home. Cause not every, not everybody does, you know, but right. That, and then, so nobody cares because yeah. who cares? Right. It's just another day. Right. Um, so then part of, you know, one of the things that we have, we haven't ever really dealt with. Um, what did you, you had a couple of titles for even today, but th- we haven't really dealt with education and developing that. And I'm, you know, the whole reason that I'm ultimately here in the Northwest is because of, I'm realizing that there are passions, desires, and my heart isn't tuned to some of the things that I think it needs to be tuned to. And I'm saying, man, my kids, I don't want them being like this. I have to help tune their desires and passions in a different way. And I need, I need need this education to be able to do that. And so I don't even know where do you start? I guess if you're broken like me, where do you start? And then when you have kids, like where do you start? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is always the question that's so, that is so difficult. Um, because you, as soon as you start studying the history, as soon as, if you, if you try to come up with a definition of what is an educated person, you study just a little bit and you realize, oh man, we're in trouble. <laughs> There's yep. no, yeah, that's how like, I feel. We, we um, <clears throat> I, I, that we have, we've had to, we've had to shift and change the definition of words to, um, of, you shift and change the standard basically by changing the definition of words from something like literate, meaning, you know, a literate person used to be somebody that could, that, that knew their way around the literature of the, the people of their language that they speak. Right. So, um, Oh, wow. If, if to somebody that can sound out words, which what (laughs) you're like, can this person read you say, well, it used to be like, well, you you know, eventually the the goal is, you know, somewhere around the eighth grade, you can read, right? You learn the grammar, um, so that eventually you can learn to read. But now we settle with, can this person, um, sound out a sentence, right? Can they read enough to be at, for the, to be advertised to? That's kind of our our low bar. Um, I'd be a cognitive uh, machine. Yeah, exactly. So there's there is very little literacy. All I mean, literacy is functionally zero in our society. Um, the and, King and, James version, when I when I in night so 1995, the King James version was still considered a 12th grade reading level. Now it's a post grad reading level. No, right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so funny. So my, my dad said, if you're you can, no longer. 
you can yeah go ahead my, my dad used to tell me he's like hey if you can read the king james bible you can read anything my dad was not very literate wasn't educated very well and he's like he learned to read from continually every day reading the king james bible and he used to make yeah. us read it yeah well the the, the and I'm, i mean i switched to the king james bible when i was about 20 21 for that reason i realized i wanted to go into um that that i wanted to be educated i wanted to, to know literature. And so what was I reading every day? Well, I'm reading the Bible every day, switch to the King James because I need, I wanted to push my reading level up so that any, and, and so we, if you get to, so you can, if you can read the King James, you can read any Shakespeare, right? There, um, there are some Shakespearean uh, plays that are considered a higher level than the King James. Um, and then most of the, common ones are considered a lower level than the King James. You would, but the King James is now considered a post-grad reading level. Um, and the reason that they shifted that was because they were, you could, you can't just keep saying like, Hey, we're graduating illiterate people from our college. <laughs> the options are teach them to read and fail a bunch of people. Um, or, change the standard and, and financially it, it failing a bunch of people doesn't work at the college level, but the college isn't the problem. By the time they get to college, they should be literate. They're not anymore. I, you know, I've heard from seminary professors at, you know, big reformed seminaries. We're, we're getting illiterate candidates there's only so much you can do with three years um, that by, you know, wow. the, in a lot of ways, the cement is set at, and they're supposed to come in literate. Now at any point in your life, if you decide, if you commit, you can become literate and it doesn't actually take that long. Um, you, but it, it's a commitment, right? Cause it's hard work. Okay. Um, and Jason, it's less hard when you're young because yeah, so <laughs> your brain's still squishy. So, but when you say you got to, for me, then define, uh, define literate again, because you said a, a familiar with a, a people's literature yeah. and their language. Yeah. So familiar with the literature of your own language. So um, in the sense that you can jump in at any point and survive, right? So you can jump in and read to at what? any point. Jump into so what and survive? The literature the literature of your people. So you can jump in into 17th century, 16th century, 19th century literature, 20th century literature, and you know enough about the history of the conversation, the literary conversation, that if you jump in and you say like, oh, the, um, this book was written in 1930, you know enough about the literature leading up to it that you can jump in at that point and say, okay, I, I've got an idea. We ain't going to make it. We ain't gonna make no, it. No, I know that's what I'm saying. <laughs> we ain't gonna make it. Ain't nobody literate no it's more. It's immediately depressing <laughs> when you realize what lit that that we're all illiterate. Okay. We're <laughs> I mean, I knew that about myself so, a little but, bit, but dang. <laughs> but what um and and you know, so I I got to spend I got to go have dinner with um a gentleman that's he's currently um He's currently translating uh, Dante right out of out of the Italian, a new verse, uh, um, blank verse 
version of Dante. But the so um and he we you know jumped in and we're talking just just Italian Renaissance literature and I was really excited. I'm um and uh he's brilliant reformed baptist trans and he he's translating it for a uh roman catholic um phd program right so you think like you have to be really good if the roman catholics are like okay we'll let the reformed baptist be the one that that does the dante translation um and he is he's really really good um and the his paradiso is about to come out i've recommended it before joseph carlson's the poet but he is he has both studied the history of English poetry and is very, very well versed in English poetry, has written a couple of epics himself um, in English, and then he's theologically really, really well grounded. Um, and then he has to study the Italian and the Italian and to know Italian, um, you can't just know a single poet in Italian. you have to actually learn a lot of a lot of Italian in order to be able to translate poetry. Um, and but that's a cross literary um, mind because you have to be uh, conversant in multiple literary language la- the literature of multiple languages um, as well as the history of ideas because you're you're trying to get to, to, to be able to do translation at all. Uh, and it used to be that, uh, so for so J. Gresham Machen, when he had to do his ordination exam, it was all in Latin. You had to be literate in multiple languages to be able to even sit for an ordination exam um, less than 100 years ago in an American church, right? right. So, so that's... Um, We've we've fallen a long, long ways, and in my mind, the first goal is to recover literacy, and then that will open up the the eyes of certain people who will say, "Oh my gosh, what if I was literate in multiple languages? Right? What if I grew and was literate in multiple ways?" Um, the 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 resources are there. It's the passion, the the affections, yeah. the love is not yeah. there. The love of of knowledge is not there, and I think that's the, that's where we're that's where we're stuck right now. You know, um, what was that line in uh, um, in uh, Goodwill Hunting when he says the ed- your Harvard education um, can be achieved for two for uh, two fifty in library fines or something like that. It's um, true. The, the resources are there, right? You you can go get the education if you if you want it, and you know that it that it's valuable, and and that is where we're stuck. We don't realize it's valuable, but classical education actually has a an answer for that. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So I'm really I, excited about it. Okay. But so, I didn't, so I got to ask the question. I, I see that. I'm supposed to ask the question. So what's the answer? Because <laughs> there's a part of me that's like, oh, that's, I, I've, you know, I've kind of 
given up a little bit on myself in this where I'm like, okay, there's some things I need to know and learn, but I'm just going to give it to my, I'm going to try and get it for my kids. Cause I, I just, I'm not going to be able to attain three languages before I'm gone here, but that's probably the wrong approach. Maybe I just don't have the passion or desire to do that. I'm just trying to get through my book reading list for this year. You know, <laughs> your kids will value what they see you valuing. Mm, I know so they true. will value. And, and we, this is, I mean, my wife and I have been involved in multiple schools, starting schools, starting, um, an arts conservatory, you know, um, the different, different, you know, it's an art school. Um, and what we have seen over and over and over is that the kids who actually really benefit from the school are the ones whose parents are willing to do the work of whose parents see that a classical education is valuable and try to get it for themselves also. Okay, I got it. They're not going right, to get right, it. I got it. They're not going to get as far as their kids maybe because there's more years, but the parents who say, oh, yeah, I believe classical education is really valuable, so I'm going to pay somebody to give it to my kids, but I, I'm not going to get it myself, and I'm not going to worry or care. Those Often those kids don't get it either. So then when you say classical education, what's, what is, what's the answer that classical education gives, and what is classical education ultimately? So, well, classical education, the reason we call it classical education is because um, John Dewey and some other folks came along and tried to restart education along scientific, what they called scientific lines, the scientific education. And what they meant was the hard sciences, um, because the word science used to just mean a body of knowledge, um, body of knowledge containing practical and metaphysical truths that were interrelated, right? So there were three major sciences, natural science, natural science, moral science, and divine science. Um, Mm. And the, uh, so all of them were sciences because they were bodies of knowledge um, that you could, that, that had had historical conversations um, a, a, a searching the truth g- generationally. So you have, um, so like the the moral sciences would be something like economics, uh, where oh, what does it look like? Really? How do how does a how what is what is the good life for a human being and f- for a human individual and for a human society? What does the good life look like? Mm. Right, that's the moral sciences. Um, what does it mean to be good? Uh, and and uh, so economics would fall under that, and you talk about how 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 ought a society organize itself, how ought a you because you're trying to find the good life. Um, I don't. Did you see um, the 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 speech from Tucker Carlson last Friday? I did at the Heritage. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was really good. But that's one of the things that he says is. Up till recently, we were all trying to figure out what the good life is. And we all thought that's what we were doing. And you thought Keynesian, and I thought, you know, you thought Keynesian, you thought, uh, you thought Keynesian economics, and you thought Austrian economics, and we would write papers, but we agreed that we were trying to find the good life. And he says, that's gone. We are not in agreement with everybody anymore that you're trying to find the good life. Um, 
is and but yeah. that is the history of education, right? Is you've got a body of knowledge um, called the the moral sciences that are all seeking the good life for mankind. What is it for good life for an individual, the good life for society. And you're, you're having a conversation over the generations to try and discover the best, the best ways to support and move towards and encourage and uh, the good life. Um, And that the, the, an educated person knew the basics of the history of the conversation, where they were in the conversation right now, and could interact with it. And that's what education meant. So the natural sciences, um, it was how does, how, how does creation function? Where did it come from? Um, how does it function? How do we bring it to its intended end? Um, the so is that you know, eschatological? Like is that es- okay? Yeah, how intended in that's not yeah teleological. I okay, think teleological. Okay, usually called teleological. What's the 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 purpose for which God gave us? You know, let, um, let's say you you discover hops, right? And you say, well, what is it? Well, it's it's a grain, and 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 it grows this way. And how do I grow it best? And and then what's it for? And then you make beer, and you're like, that's what it's for. I've discovered right, right. the intended purpose of hops. Right. Um, and, uh, so that, and there, so there's metaphysical questions. Where did creation come from? Um, God, you know, God created it is how we answer God created with a particular intention. And then there are practical questions, um, how to grow it best. When do you plant, you know, all of those things would fall under the natural sciences. And so that's, um, you know, physics, chemistry, or what was called, it was called alchemy until fairly recently, but now we call it chemistry because alchemy sounds, sounds too much like magic. But most of our chemists um, in the past were actually alchemists, but um, that's a, that's that was a, more of a switch in, we had a switch in cosmology where alchemy now sounded um, disreputable. And so mm-hmm. we came up with chemistry, dropped the owl off the front. Uh, but, and then, uh, farming, you know, all, all of that. And then theology um, the uh, was called the queen of the sciences um, because it was, it, it answered, it contained within itself the answers that you needed to be able to answer the metaphysical questions about the natural and moral sciences. So you couldn't have, you couldn't answer the metaphysical questions in natural, the natural sciences without the queen of the sciences, um, because all of the metaphysical questions had to be bumped up to questions that were answered in the the theological sciences, the divine sciences. So theological means um, science of God or the study of God, but um, all the things that fall under knowledge of God um, and, and uh, you know, And that was its own category. It got shifted to be under philosophy by the folks that started the French Revolution. So now (laughs) theology is a subcategory of philosophy because the encyclopedists, which were a French, was a French movement. They moved um, uh, Diderot. He was he's the guy that did it. Um, He reorganized all of the thought, all of the history of thought, and he put theology as a subset of philosophy rather than 
the uh, philosophy as a subset of uh, as a subset of both moral philosophy and um, metaphysical philosophy, right? So it used to be that philosophy was a subcategory in a couple of different sciences with theological um, with the theology as the queen of the sciences over all of them. Um, Diderot moved theology to a new spot. Um, and so then Christianity became a sub philosophy of theology, which was a sub philosophy of the, of philosophy, which was the sub philosophy of metaphysics. So you had this, and then, we got rid of metaphysics. So then all you had to do was get rid of metaphysics, mm. which happened in the, I mean, it started with Nietzsche um, and then was completed in the sixties, really in the philosophy departments was metaphysics went away. So, but to, to say I have, I'm educated in a subject um, would be to say, I understand where this subject fits in the broader thought of the of the history of mankind the the broader conversation and then i know the conversation of this particular subject you know where it, where this subject comes from is where it started and then the major players um within it so it's a his, so knowledge is a historical um the so the the same muse um that is responsible in classical thought is responsible for memory and history muse the same individual muse? memory you said with the same the muse. same muse what is what is muse so um okay so sorry muses, i had to take you off. Were, <laughs> no, that's okay the olympian muses were the um the nine spirits of inspiration of the arts so the um and and this is mostly used just straight metaphorical. There's some stories in Hesiod. Um, there's some stories in Homer. They're mentioned in Homer. And, but um, the the uh, so you've got the nine muses. Um, uh, epic poetry. Uh, oh God, I'm gotta grab the list. I try to I try to have all this memorized. <laughs> but unfortunately, wait. Well, why are you work? Why are you working on that? So it was moral science. What was the other one? Uh, natural, moral, and divine sciences. Yeah, thank you. All right. Here's the Olympian muses. So, um, and these were considered the affection tuning arts. So these were the arts that tuned our affections. So the nine muses were the, ins the, the divine inspirations behind the different art forms that then tuned the affections of mankind, right? So they were the, they were the ones that gave us the gut reaction to whether something was good and true because they tuned our loves with their beauty. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. This, this, so this is why this is this this is all gone from our education because yeah, we think yeah, we're yeah. creating we we think we're this is why so freedom yeah. oh man it's all okay. connected okay so hold on I got to say this because this is the difference now I think I'm <laughs> you know you made me read uh, the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis right and yes. one of the things he made clear there's a difference between symphonic understanding of 
the cosmos versus a um a cog mechanical mechanical right mechanistic yeah and it seems like you're building off of the symphonic reality of the universe exactly okay yeah so so behind all of this is a different cosmology because so the the reason it's called the liberal arts um is that the it's the, the it is the education that you give a free person right? the same word that's liberty comes from the li- is Libre. liberal arts right yeah the the arts the it's the the education that you give to a free person freedom is a blessing in a symphol in a symphonic musical setting right it, and you go to a great jazz concert and you the the man who his fingers are freed from having to think through what he has to push to get what sound is the one who gives you you know you, you uh, gives you the best saxophone solo the freedom um so freedom to you uh you know i remember um the first time i heard new orleans uh marching jazz i was it blew me away every you p- pick any particular person and pick them pull them aside and it, it doesn't it might be cool but it doesn't sound like music it doesn't sound amazing it doesn't sound you know, you the the trombone you know um might go don't don't do right, right and you're like okay that's cool you know Whatever. but um and then and then you've got um doom 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 you know doom with the bass uh the bass drum uh and then but you take all of those musicians all playing one small part and you put them together and no single person is playing the the music right it is a music that is all played together it's a it's a symphonic type of marching music and then you know you but they're all free to kind of play whatever they want and that's the thing that gives it its um its joy and its exuberance and the thing that makes it so that nobody can stand still and stay still, right? It's the freedom, uh, it, freedom within a symphonic universe is what gives it, you, you get more energy, you get, um, but freedom um, in a, in a watch means it's broken, right? If, if you've got a free cog then somebody has to get in there and tighten it up and make it not free anymore so that the watch works mm. right in a machine freedom is bad you know, in in physics a free radical is <laughs> is the enemy right, right like right. you you don't it's right? cancerous, so in a mechanistic right. universe it's cancerous right exactly it ca- so in a mechanistic universe freedom is an enemy you have to get rid of freedom in a mechanistic universe you and oh my in, goodness in a, the education that we give our kids now and with a mechanistic cosmology makes their gut reaction to freedom terror right their gut reaction to freedom is terror because it's a mechanistic universe everything has to be in line and in its place right well in a symphonic understanding of the cosmos which is actually what reality is like freedom is a blessing freedom is what you want freedom and you want freedom for everybody because the freedom of the individuals actually 
reinvigorates and um, society and pushes it forward and moves the conversation ahead. You meet somebody who is a free thinker in a mechanistic universe. That's dangerous. A free, but a free thinker in a symphonic universe is a blessing, right? And, and that's how, that's how different um, the classical world was when all of the classical education was developed. It was that the basic understanding was that the good life fundamentally necessitated freedom. Mm. The scientific education, the free life fundamentally necessitated lack of freedom. You had to be the, you had to be turned into the cog that fit the machine properly without the freedom Pure precision uh, to yeah. mess everything up. Yeah. So, um, so it, it's so completely fundamentally different that um, what used to be just called education, right? Lib- liberal education is what it was called. The education of a free man. Had, we, you it end up it, it they end up now calling it a classical education um, because it's from before everything went wrong. Well, that's insane. Um, you know, I just got them. That's an, it's insane. I just got done watching this guy on MSNBC talk about how classical education was racist, but why do we, but that's insane to think that when the idea of a classical education is a liberal arts education, which is a free man's, you know, so I remember the first time I heard Ben Merkel talk about classical education. He's like a liberal arts education is a free man's education. And, Maybe it's just because of the culture I was in and where we're at. All of a sudden, I'm all, all my antennas when I, okay, you got my attention. How are we going to get this freedom then? Right? <laughs> like, like right. G- give it to me. Yeah. Put it on me, you know? But think about um, the definition of freedom that comes with something like critical theory. The definition of freedom is I'm at the top and can tell and can take everybody else's freedom. There is a there is a point at the top that is free, and you know that you're free because everybody else is not free. Mm. Right? Critical theory is a Machiavellian mechanistic understanding of the world. Right? That some the 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 only way to have freedom is to take it from everyone else. So, in that situation, if you are, I don't know if you're, if you're saying we're classical education, which means we reject critical theory, then they're a threat to your freedom. You've got to get rid of them. Right. I mean, I don't know. I haven't watched the clip. Um, so I don't know exactly what he means, but my guess is it's something like that. <laughs> you want me to play it? I don't want to, right? I'm more concerned about what yeah. you're saying than I am what he's saying, because I, th- I think you're, I think you're right with critical theory anyway. And the way that I know that we're operating in critical theory is that, we don't we don't see that stuff and be like, I'm gonna go back and teach my kids. <laughs> like, well, you know, we we operate always in the same way. It's like, and I'm gonna just come over here and go to the top. Since you think if you're at the top, you're gonna be in control. I'm gonna go to the top now, and I'm gonna execute yeah. that you can't have any of this stuff. And it's like, <laughs> well, right. exactly. I mean, be so um, because yeah, you see that happening now in places um, where you think. Okay, how it is it? How is it that we're going to stop critical theory? It's like, well, we got to vote somebody in that outlaws it. 
Right, <laughs> like, right, right. That's critical theory. What do you mean? We're not stopping critical theory. You are enforcing critical theory. Because <laughs> now point. they just got to get more um, people to get up there. And then. Yeah. So, but the difficulty is what Tucker Carlson talked about how not every, you know, he, he said, if the, if the question, if the question is, am I allowed, you know, I want to be allowed to, um, to medically deform children. Right. Right. He said, we're not in the same conversation anymore. Right. We're not, we're not seeking the good life together. Like we used to be. So if that, if that becomes, if that's the question, then, um, what do we do if our answer is we better grab the reins of power and yank real hard um, or, or, and take then, then we're in trouble. Um, we aren't thinking uh, like free men right now. I'm not saying that we shouldn't outlaw things like that. Although the reality is those things are already outlawed. I was going to say that's right. Yeah. 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 You, 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 they are, they are already breaking laws on the books. Um, and, and that's the mistake I think that a lot of our legal system is, is making is that, um, the, those things have been, um, outlawed for a long time in common law in just the, the in our legal system. So, um, okay, I gotta, I gotta stop you. gotta right figure there. out how to make some better. Well, legal got, arguments maybe um, I, I don't think we need to make uh, the the arguments that we're needing to make aren't legal ones this is where well yeah for if you're a, if you're a lawyer i mean if you're a lawyer and that's where your calling is and and you're at, you're at the fight at that level no jason i even disagree I, with you there though because i think this goes back to i'm going to argue with you moral sciences natural love sciences it. divine right and every, yep. everybody is working in one of those. And this is what's been so amazing. Okay, I got to talk about the conference coming up May 13th out in Nashville because this is this is hitting right with some of the things we're going to deal with. I'm watching David Fowler, who is a lawyer, not argue so much law as the thing that sets up the reality of law. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. If you don't yeah, have yeah, yeah. the queen no, of I'm, the science. I've, go I've ahead. Got a, I've got a pre-copy of his new book. I'm reading it right now. So Who? <laughs> Fowler's new book. David Fowler's new book. Yeah, I'm reading it. It's, David, it, you, it's it's game changer. David, how is it? You yeah. know what? I don't understand how you got a copy of it. I didn't get a copy of it. I don't understand. I'm checking my email. Did he really send you a copy and not send me a copy? Doggone it! Wow. I didn't know he didn't send you a copy. Oh, uh, we found out now, didn't we? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, look at that. I don't um, see no. You no, know, you're right. He's he's arguing. At the he's 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 arguing at the foundation level. He's he's yes. saying he, he's saying you're building a legal argument on sand over there, <laughs> right? That's that's and, a and he's using history. Based, he's historic. Um, like you said, mm-hmm. this is a historical conversation, right? That that, that this is what an educated person is ultimately having a historical conversation one way or the other. Right. Right. And so even as a lawyer right now to argue law, you have to ask yourself, what is the tradition that's been handed down to us <laughs> in, in God's law? It's common law that shows us, oh, this is how we deal with the situation or this is what we've done before. But you have to. I guess, 
go ahead. I, I'll let you finish because I want to get back to how you develop then this kind of education. Yeah. So, right. And that, and I think that's exactly the thing is you say, okay, so what do I do about it? Well, the reality is, and this is where the muse, why the muses are so important and why, um, what, so the, the idea of the muses is that they're the, there's the inspiration of the nine arts now whether or not the the nine arts are exactly the right ones or if there's more than that or less than that or some of them can be combined but that's a debate that's really fun to have and all that but they had an idea that there were the nine basic arts and this is the, the inspiration of the muses when when an art was inspired by the muse you knew that because it tuned the affection of the one who received the art towards uh, a a gut reaction um, by by their by its beauty it tuned our gut reactions to recognize truth and goodness at the gut level. Is this why you wrote the book? No one doubts a belly laugh. Mm-hmm. Because so was- this is so yeah exactly because it because you start to realize this stuff and, and you realize you. You can't just explain this to somebody that it doesn't work that way. It has to be, it it has to be communicated in the arts. But the um, uh, Edith Schaefer wrote a wonderful book about the the arts of homemaking that my wife and I read when when we were newlyweds, um, and how homemaking is an art that shapes the soul. Of children Ooh. right and so um and they want to take the, the women out one, you know hold on time out and they trying to take it, oh, i'm sorry we're never gonna get anywhere when you see that so, the social programs are trying to create daycares to take women out of the homes so they can go work they're destroying the the heart's passion of a child to develop under a culture of a family to have their passions yeah. geared a particular way so that they can gear the passions of your children a particular way i mean biden just came out recently and said that everybody's that your kid is everybody else's kid and i was like yo yeah back the hell off for real bro <laughs> now i'm about to go grab them right. gun. <laughs> Anyway, go ahead, Jason. <laughs> but but it's so that the education of young children, um, I, I I I like to think of it as soul craft through beauty, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's the that's what that's what moms do. Ugh. They they build and shape souls through beauty, through beautiful food, beautiful houses, beautiful music, beautiful beautiful speech right there they way the way a mom talks to their baby is i just always it's always so amazing right and it's not something that i it's something that i learned from my wife how do you talk to a baby right because she would hold the baby and she would talk to the baby and and you think the beautiful words the you know the um even just like you know a mom that gets up and gets ready in the morning um because they're gonna, because they're they value their kids, right? They get up and they, they they get ready and they get dressed and all you know all of those things that not that they have to like put on a ball gown every day, but just 
getting up and saying, I'm getting dressed for the day and purposefully trying to dress in a way that's beautiful. There's an appropriate appropriate kind of beauty for the kind of work that you do in a home because it's not like, because you're still going to work every day. Um, but it's, uh, but just even that, it's forming the souls of her children towards Christ, who is true, who is truth, who is goodness, who is beauty, right? So, so that, and so this, this is where um, that, the and the the arts are so important in a young so our, our word musical comes from the muse you know the muses so um it's a uh the it played so plato plato's in the republic um i think this one of the things that he's most uh, one of the places he's done the most damage in the church is his theology of music. But he he has an explanation of why music is so important. And then he has a description of music that is pagan. And we have we need to be able to take his explanation of why music is so important and not accept his definition of what makes good music good or <laughs> because it's, it, it's drawn out of a, um, the, in the Republic music and poetry are for the control of the population to make them accept their place in the society, right? It's a very cog in the machine mindset. Um, but he says music is the way we're going to form our citizens well because music has a formative uh, a formative effect on the deepest aspects of their affections mm. right music through rhythm and melody and um and eventually harmony although they didn't really have that a concept of harmony that that was that's something that came with post trinitarian music <laughs> actually is where harmony was developed but um the that the melody and the rhythm he said gets within us Right, physically, it actually resonates beyond our skin, which is true, and that's part of what he's saying. Um, but he also uh, he, he understands that it actually um, has an effect on our affections um, because of its beauty, right? And so then he says, what we need is, you know, basically marches and no polyrhythms um, and you kind of that consistently thumping music that keeps a person in line, right? Like a um, political rave almost, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a terrible, that's a terrible analogy. Um, but in the Republic, he has this whole section about the, the, and, and the church has looked at the first part and said, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, and then looked at the second part and said, well, maybe he's right about that. Maybe we should actually have this as well. And so he doesn't, he doesn't want any new music. He doesn't, he wants the music um, to not come from people, but to always come from the government top down, you know, um, things like that, because it's music are a means of control. And if you have music, that's too emotional, then you'll lose control of the people. Well, the Psalms talk the exact opposite way. David says, you know, um, the, that the Lord rejoices in in a, a new song. Hey, it's a new day. Let's write a new song. Um, he talks a lot about the emotional effect uh, of music as a good thing. Um, the 
they have all different kinds of instruments, rhythmic as well as um, as tonal uh, music in in the Psalms, right? All of so um, a lot of a lot of uh, you know you you when people get really influenced by Plato, the church music is straightened out. Any polyrhythms are removed. Um, any uh, the harmonies have a tendency to be straightened out, or we only sing in unison and we reject harmony. Um, and then no new music is allowed. It's good because it's old is a platonic argument, uh, like not, not neoplatonic in a Gnostic way, actually an argument made by Plato. So that, to, that if it's old, it's good. And if it's new, it's bad. That's not a Christian concept of music those are some of the things that the protestant church in particular has brought in from plato but the the reality is all of the arts work the same way music does right that they're all all the arts are musical or muse muse ish musish so then (laughs) what are the what are the nine muses then all right um so and they all, and just to make so, and all of them in some way, music is the is the um, music is. I'm not the gateway drug, but it's the thing that deciphers all of it too. So it, you know, you put music in the, or, or you put these into music to get them into people. Is that well? Is no, part I, of it? I, I think what you would say. So music is one of the muses, but our word, our word, music. Um, comes from muse has come to be mean only one of the nine okay i got you i got you when actually all nine of them function this that way right so when they talk about the function of the muses all of them function the way we know music works right but we have dropped we've dropped so, the rest of them. So the music, not quite the rest of them, but we dropped a lot of them. So music is it, it, muse. Period. The idea of muse is like storytelling. It gets past watchful dragons, like way music does. Exactly. So it's all of the it's all of the arts that affect us at the level of the affections, and and that that's form. That's education. Our affections. That that's the beginning of education. Ah, okay. Right? So what's so the, the so here, here's what they are. So eloquence and epic poetry is the first one. Eloquence and epic poetry. What is that? So epic poetry is, you know, um, you know, Homer, uh, Virgil, Milton. Stuff you've been bringing Beowulf, me along. On. <laughs> yeah. So it's the long form poetry that requires. So the eloquence, it's, it, so it's, it, it's storytelling poetry, I guess is how you would put it. So it's that long form storytelling. Um, and so the eloquence has to do with the, um, when, when somebody tells you a story and you can't help, but listen, that's eloquence. Mm, okay. Right. It's that, that ability to draw you captivate you and draw you completely in to a story. So epic poetry is that, um, and then history and memory. So history, is like corporate memory um, mm. and then individual memory. So the things that a people group know and things that we individually know. So the stories from history. Um, erato is the, the muse of lyric and erotic poetry. Right. So this is the shorter poetry. Um, what, what's erotic? That, uh, 
erotic would be like love poetry between a man and a woman. Like so Psalms. Or, I mean, not in the song of Solomon. Psalms. Those, they got the Song of Solomon. So Psalm 45, I think, is the only uh, love poem in the Psalter. But then Song of Solomon. But this is most of our, you know, most of our, so that, like, so much of our popular music this is this is where it fits right it's this uh erato it's the lyric and erotic poetry um and this is so a christian if a, something is going to be considered a christian music it has to, so it um it has to actually we so polyhymnia is the muse of sacred poetry is that we number have four? taken sacred poetry um well it's actually Number six. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll okay. get get them all out in all order. Right, so right, right. Um, next is music, and then tragedy. So sad, sad um, stories, and then sacred poetry. It's polyhymnia. So our word hymnal hymns, you know, songs mm. to God, comes from this muse, right? So this is where if you. Know, if it's a if it's on a Christian station, it has to be inspired by polyhymnia. But we but that means we have left all of the other muses to the pagans. So our kids, Interesting. Are, if they want a love poem, they don't get love poems from Christians. All their love poems are on their phone in their pocket are from non Christians. But that's an essential part of forming their moral imagination and of forming their their moral affections of for you know, is there is there under how how they understand love poetry god thought so that's why he gave the song of solomon exactly right um so and then you've got dance dance terpsichore is one of the uh, affection tuning arts comedy <laughs> and astronomy <laughs> <laughs> which astronomy comes up all the time it was so central to who we are as human beings is what what uh how how we treat the sky when we look up interesting we do, literally don't even do that anymore we don't stop and look up so the the ancients and then the christian you, so one of the things that you see all the time in Christian architecture, Christian art, is is the muses painted um, in the background, right? You see the muses, you see the muses carved into walls. You see the muses, all sorts, right? The because they understood that um, how important the tuning of the affections was, how important the formation of our affections towards goodness and truth was by the beauty of the arts we have walked away from that. Now we still write hymns. Um, well, well, we're we... starting to realize we've got to make some, you know, we, we that music is important. Um, you, you starting to get some, you know, comics comedy that happens in churches and things, but you don't, you're not, we don't send out comics in you know, the church. Doesn't raise up comics that go out, to the comet comedy stores and comedy and you know um, to wow. the comedy stages that are all over and rock them. We should be doing that though. We should be sending out Christians that rock 
comedy stages because they're so good at comedy because they're inspired by the muse to go make the truth and goodness beautiful by comedy. Well, and they're, op- but it's, they're operating with all nine of these too, though, right? So they're able to have a, a mm-hmm. deep bag of communication. Yeah, exactly. Right. These are, so we, um, I mean, when we were uh, down in LA, Marcus and I go to comedy, uh, underground comedy everywhere we go. It's, it's because underground comedy is, um, is one of the most powerful forces in the, in our societies, um, that guides our society. Right. And so, I like to know where we're going. And so, but um, we were at one um, comedy shop and it was a, it was a a night of conservative comedy. It it was called, uh, you know, laughter for America or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was called. It was, it was amazingly good comedy. Five comics plus an MC that were all um, that, that, well, four of the five comics knocked it out of the park, and then the MC was hilarious. Um, and uh, but it was—I mean, it was really interesting. We get there, you know, you sit down, and it's just like any comedy s- store, you know, two drink minimum, and all, all the normal things that go with going to a comedy store, comedy shop of, of some sort. Um, but at the beginning, they all stood up and sang the national anthem together, incredibly, you know loud and emotionally singing the national anthem and then they sit down and the comedy was really funny one guy comes out i think he might have been the only christian comic up comic up there he's a new christian um he's also the only comic that used swear words which was interesting um uh, but he he got up and he said i'm you know he says if 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 uh, many of you are like me this whole pandemic has shifted a lot of things uh, about about uh, the way you view the world. He said, look, who, who would have known a guy named Lefkowitz would ever end up baptized, you know, something like that. Cause he's a Jewish guy. And he's like, but I'm new, newly baptized. And a bunch of people cheer. And, and uh, he was, and, and uh, the, I was the best, the, 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 he, and he said, you know, but you know, there's, there's one thing I've realized reading the Bible is uh, God told us we're only allowed to cut off a little bit of our penises. <laughs> Right <laughs> now, he did not bring up. He was not. He did. He was not like trans this, trans that. Right. He wasn't making. He he was not. He but, didn't have to bring up anything. But boy, what a joke! What a joke! Right. That is that is a well crafted, well thought out joke that is punching back specifically against one of the major lies of our culture. But punching back in such a um, affection forming way, right? Where you, I mean, the place blew up in laughter, right? It was um, such a good joke. An- another really good joke. Got, actually, there was another Christian comedian because the last guy that came up was Christian. And he was like, Yeah, I'm a Lutheran, which means I'm a non practicing Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I got a Luther guy here who's going to love right? that. Yeah. It's, it's such a good joke, right? But, the, but it's not, it, but comedy is an affection forming art, right? And you, you use it well by loving the truth yourself, by loving goodness yourself, by growing in your own sanctification, growing in the Lord, and then getting really good at your craft so that the things that you love, um, 
and the things that you hate, you can make them attractive and unattractive through the art form. That's what the arts are for. I mean, that's the arts are there's they're for a lot of things, or right? they're for the connect human connection and, and the translation of truth and the translation of survival information. And there's a lot that art does. Um, but in in an educational setting, right, it's an it's a, it's about the formation of the affections towards goodness and truth through beauty. And um and each of them has their own each of them has their own historical conversation, right? If you, I mean, you know this as a director, if you meet somebody who's like, I want to be a director and you say, oh, what was the last movie you watched? Um, and they tell you and you're like, oh, what's your favorite movie? And they haven't seen a movie that's more than like 18 months or two years old. Then you probably tell them the same thing I do, which is like, well, you don't really want to be a director yet. I'll know you want to be a director when you're out there studying the great directors of the past, trying to figure out how'd they do that? How'd they do that? How'd they do that? Right. I mean, you gave me when, when I was saying, well, I don't know if I ever want to direct. Um, you gave me master shots. Yeah. You said, yeah, I gave you a bunch of, here's how you find out. (laughs) You gave me a a stack of, if you find these, if you, if you look at these and you, and you can't put them down, then you want to be a director. And I read through all of them. I'm marking them up before too long. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. But that's exactly it, right? Here's here is a, that that that's the equivalent of a history of the craft of camera work, right? That's right? exactly that, right. That master shot set. It's a so you, like this is somebody that has compiled the history of the craft of camera work in direct in storytelling, um, and they're incredible, incredible. And that's how I knew that at some point I do want to direct yep. because that stuff is I, you know, fascinating. So, so exciting then, right so then where do you um so th- these nine muses how do you get these in you uh, how how do you what is the uh, and i gotta run in like 10 minutes but what is the, how do you sorry man we don't have to do a couple on these because this is really this <laughs> I, is, I warned you yesterday you're right no, like this is I like this is gonna take a couple yeah no this is an introduction because um i've the more that i begin you know, become more literate, the more I love it. Right. And the more I wish I had more time for it. And this is why I'm telling my kids, like, listen, daddy got y'all from here until you're 18, 19. If you decide to go further, I'll, I'll cover it. You know, I'll cover it. So you can do this, but get all of this, get every last bit of it because it's bigger than just getting a job. It's bigger than just being able to go and, and work somewhere. I want you to be a blessing to the world, right? Like that's what, that's what, that's, that's what this, I want you to be a blessing to the world. I want you to inspire people to say, wow, what a great God through comedy or through, I don't care if it's fixing breaks. I just want you to be a master at it and use all of these right. things in that form. And so, um, so the more that I'm, I'm becoming educated, the more and more are literate, the more I'm, I'm understanding this, but there is a there is one thing to just go and read books. It's another thing to have um the 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 joy of it, is that right? Or the the Yeah in the same way that you, you laugh at a joke is that, that that kind of thing that bubbles up inside of you where you have that because of beauty. Right? Right. Well and I and I think um As a father, I feel responsibility you know, the, to get that desire for my children. So what is how where do you start at? I mean, 
the it it comes down to things like you know making sure the things that you love you in you love them in front of your kids right i think that's the beginning of it so if if you've got if there's you know music or poetry or something that you're like man i love this that you love it with your kids in front of your kids that you express to them what it looks like to really love and enjoy something and i often as fathers, we have a tendency in the modern, in this setting, to think that if we are ex- emotionally expressing our love of something because that that we find moving or beautiful, that we are lowered in our children's eyes, right? By by those expressions of emotion. I mean, for whatever reason, anger is not something that we think lowers us in our children's eyes, so we don't have any problem with that. But really <laughs> expressing our love of something, <laughs> like, you know, if, if the music that you grew up with, telling the story, oh, man, I remember the first time I heard this. Oh, I love this song. Oh, I love, you know, I, um, oh, I love this poem. I love this story. I love this novel. Just really loving, beautiful things in front of your kids. My kids have been forced to listen to my favorite operas they don't love opera yet but i want them to see me loving opera right me singing a bad figaro um is really really important and powerful yeah exactly right singing along like i i i um i don't have a great operatic voice um but if i've got you know the operas that i really love i can sing along through the whole thing, right? And they've heard, and they've heard me sing bad opera, but it's because I want them to understand this is something beautiful. Your dad loves it. Your dad loves this beautiful thing. Um, they'll, I think their musical tastes will grow into it. Um, I didn't love opera when I was a little kid. Opera is hard and it's complex and and it's deeply emotional. And when I was, I didn't. Ha- God hadn't dug my wells of emotion deep enough to really experience. Um opera until my mid twenties. That's when those wells of emotion were finally deep enough to be able to hear the flower duet and go, Oh, I've, I've felt that before. I I hadn't felt anything that deeply (laughs) Um, until, uh, you know, you start having kids and the fears that come with raising kids or the, you know, the fears of taking your kids to the hospital and loving something so much and being afraid it's going to be taken away. You know, something, something like the flower duet, and hearing the love being taken away, you recognize that emotion now and you can re you can see the beauty of that fear the, uh, that comes from the love of loss or the, the fear of loss that comes from love that I couldn't when I was 18, 19, like I just hadn't experienced enough life to be able to feel along with some of the depth of emotion that you get in opera. Um, but I want my kids to see that. Um, to see me loving that, you know, and, um, you know, I, I want my kids when they find a new piece of music that they love for them to come to me and say, Hey dad, I just found this new band. I really like them. What do you think? Right. And so if you spend all of your time talking of criticizing your kids move the other way when they find something they love, cause they're, cause they don't want to hear you criticize it. Right. If you lead with criticism, if you lead with the things that you don't like, if you lead, w- um, if, if they know you're a critic, um, then they're when they find a new 
something they love, they don't bring it towards you. But if they've seen you love things that are beautiful and they know that that's your default is the love of beauty, not, not criticism, then you get those opportunities to walk through things with your kids and they might bring you something, you know, then you're like, I don't get it. Explain to me why you love this. <laughs> Explain to me, right. And, and, and you, that opens opportunities um, for conversations about, you know, uh, I, I remember talking to one dad who was saying, man, my, my kids, my, my boys, they just, they love this heavy rock and roll. And all I've ever listened to is folk music. I just don't get it. It just tearing us apart. And my advice at the time was go ask them what the next album they want is buy it for them, buy yourself a copy, listen to it, and then go sit down and say, help me understand why you love this. If you find that there's something in there that a, a misformed affection, then you can talk to them about Interesting. it. But you can't talk to them about it. If all you say is that stuff is terrible. It's awful. Now, if they, if they're bringing home, like, I, you know, Mike, the only time my parents ever made me return an album was, uh, um, blood sugar, sex, magic. (laughs) Well, the chronic, that would be a good one. If it had, I brought that home, they would have made me bring it. And that's one you listen to and you can say, you know, let me explain to you why we're returning this. I mean, you can't return stuff anymore. It's all streaming or whatever, but let me explain to you. Let, and, and if they don't see it now, they'll see it as they grow older. Right. Um, especially if they know like you know my dad loves earth wind and fire so i know it's not just that he's just prejudiced against beats or you know or something that you can say like no they they don't you know snoop dog does not speak well about women <laughs> <laughs> right that's something that is not good it's objectively not good the way snoop dog talks about women right right that's um you can have those conversations if they know my dad loves beautiful stuff. So it's not the, it's not that right. It's something else. Um, the, but you know, if, uh, if, if you're, if you're always a critic, you end up not getting an opportunity to criticize anything with your kids. That's the reality. If criticism is the norm. Okay. So where are we going to, there's so much I want to say and I have to run, but there's so much I want to say and add to this. I'm going to talk about my hot dog story. But I can't talk about my hot dog story now. We'll talk about well, it next I think show. Be, yeah, let's 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 talk about that on the next show because I think that's the that's that's the ticket, right? Is how do you what does it look like to move your kids towards move can, yeah, teach you have, your kids how to be moved by beauty? Yeah, because that's one of our jobs as a dad is to teach them how to be moved by beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So th- we'll talk about that next. Okay. I've started talking about the conf, the, not the conference, the event March or May 13th, uh, May 13th is going to be in Nashville. You can go find out more, uh, FLF network.com, Jason Farley, George Grant, David Fowler and myself. And I think Doug to is going to be there and he doesn't know it, but he might be on stage with us. Um, and there's only room for 50 people. This is a small intimate event. We're going to try and 
re- help rebuild a biblical cosmology. Basically, some of the things we're talking about here, but with a different topic. And um, since we have David Fowler, it's going to be within law, common law, those type of things. And then George Grant, you know, to help reorder our passions through storytelling. It's just so, so good. Go sign up. I think we're okay. close to full. Um, so if you're going to do it, you should do it quickly. I'm looking forward. Um, Knox Unplugged has been such a blessing to me just having this conversation with Jason. And I just want to do these everywhere. I would love to see them in New York. I would love to see them in California. I'd love to see them in Texas, in Florida, in Kansas City, in Minneapolis, South Carolina. I, I just so my guy, I just, Daniel Aaron Spratt hit me up. He's like, you forgot about us out here in Kansas. Like, I didn't forget about y'all. We got Missouri, Kansas, we, we there. We'll do them out there too. Um, so sign up right now, flfnetwork.com. Did I forget anything else? I don't think so. Um, what's the what's the name of the event again? Um, the, met- the world dies uh, when the metaphor ends, right? The world dies when the metaphor ends, exactly. That's the name of the event. It's going to be phenomenal. I I can't wait. So, and it's so hard to do this show and not talk about that event. <laughs> but I yeah. think all of this is building up to that. So next we'll talk about my hot dog story and we'll get into education, um, shaping and forming the passion, soul craft, right? It's just called the soul craft. Soul craft so, yeah. Right. Soul crafting. What do you call yeah, it? Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. So, well, uh, soul crafting through souls beauty. through beauty, crafting souls through beauty, Yeah, soul craft through beauty introduction. Um, <laughs> introduction <laughs> that's what this is so crafted through beauty introduction and then we'll do until we just can do no more